The Standard Deviations podcast is a weekly production that looks at money, mind, and meaning, all through a psychological lens. Each week, psychologist and New York Times bestselling author Dr. Daniel Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest, experts in everything from finance to literature to wellness. Support for Standard Deviations comes from the Guardian Network. You know the old saying, a penny saved is a penny earned? How many pennies would you earn if you skipped your next venti iced mocha half-calf latte or that burger that needed five napkins? Over a lifetime, they add up. Like putting a kid through college add up. Find out where your priorities lie by playing the cash stash dash at livingconfidently.com slash play. Hello and welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby. I am here today with Brent Bishore, who's going to talk to us about 10 ideas that changed his life. Uh, Brent is the CEO of Adventures, uh, which we refer to as a family of companies investing in family companies. And he is the author of a fantastic new book called The Messy Marketplace. Welcome to the show, Brent. Hey, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. So I think when people try and talk about or conceptualize your work, at least I'll speak for myself. I think of what you do as sort of a baby Berkshire. And I think it's because when I first encountered you, you said something to the effect of you were trying to build a a nonstop compounding machine. Is this an apt comparison or is that not quite right? Uh, I mean, other than the size and the success, uh, (laughs) yeah, I mean, I think, I think that would be, uh, that would be correct. I mean, look, uh, Berkshire has been a lot of different things through the years. Um, we certainly focus on uh, acquiring and partnering with smaller, smaller family-owned companies, which they did uh, very early on. And uh, so I would say, uh, yeah, we're, we're like Berkshire before they had a lot of success. So, what, Would you ever make a move to public equity or is that not in the cards? Well, uh, I currently sit on the board of one publicly traded company now, and, and uh, I think it's just a different mechanism for engaging uh, equity holders. So, I mean, I, I wouldn't say anything's off the table. I certainly um, don't see uh, any immediate future that adventures would be getting into the to the public markets other than potentially a take private of some sort. But that's nothing on the horizon on that front. So one of my, one of, uh, I think the standout features of your business is that in, in almost every regard, you have this sort of principled contrarianism. So you're based in Missouri, uh, while others are sort of all flocking to Silicon Valley. Um, you're investing in things like plumbers and porta potties when everyone's talking about strong form AI. Uh, do you see this as a sort of an investing edge? Well, I certainly think that um, uh, who you compete with matters, and uh, I definitely want to compete with uh, less capable, uh, potentially, or less motivated uh, people. I mean, and I think that anytime you look at where competition levels are, the the more blue collar, the more off the run, the the less likely that the smartest, um, most driven people in the world are going to be uh, going to be competing with you. Uh, but you also, on the flip side, have have issues with talent. So, I mean, uh, one of the things that we've done at Adventures uh, has put a heavy focus on getting the smartest people to be able to work in smaller companies, which is just a, a real rarity. So you're based in a college town. Do you do any direct sort of college recruitment or try and tap into Mizzou as a source of talent? Oh, heck yeah. For sure. I mean, we've got forty thousand students in the area, and um, yeah, we, we've we've hired quite a few staff uh, that are currently uh, at Adventures from Mizzou. 
Uh, I had a, uh, I went, I attended the uh, law and MBA program in Mizzou, and that's how I ended up in Columbia in the first place and met my wife who's getting her PhD and sort of never left. So, um, yeah, we're, we're big fans of, uh, uh, taking local people and trying to plug them in. So I've, I've said to you offline that, that Columbia is home to the finest dessert I have ever had in my life, which was some custard I got there, which was absolutely mind blowing. I do not remember the name of the place because my mind was so thoroughly blown that I, I was disoriented. But uh, if, if nothing else, <laughs> if nothing else, Columbia is home to some world-class custard. So well, you got to do something right. That's right. So you have this incredible business and uh, I don't really want to talk about it today. In fact, I want to talk about a, a piece you wrote. It was actually a tweet storm um, that was these 10 ideas that have changed your life. And so your business is incredible. You spoke with Patrick O'Shaughnessy about it at length, and I would refer everyone to that podcast for, for a deeper dive on, on what you're doing because it is important and, and laudable work. Uh, but I want to talk, the psychologist in me is, is interested in these rules for living. Um, and I think that the most successful business people really have this uh, deep-seated uh, sort of philosophical compass or this North Star that, that guides all of their decisions because just, just so much comes at you. So I hope people will learn about your business. I hope people will read The Messy Marketplace. Um, but, but with your permission, I'd like to dive into maybe three or four of these uh, 10 rules that changed your life, 10 ideas. Sounds great. Let's do it. So, uh, you know, I'm from Alabama, you're from Missouri. So we're going to try a Latin phrase right out of the gate with, with perhaps mixed results. But the, the first idea was imago Dei, which I'm, I'm probably butchering. Uh, but it's the idea that every person is inherently valuable, independent of behavior and beliefs. So I, I assume that it means that, you know, created in the image of God, quite literally. Um, and it put me in mind of a quote by C.S. Lewis that I love. It's a bit lengthy, so uh, bear with me. But C.S. Lewis says, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature, which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all, the, all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all plays, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat, but it is immortals with whom we joke, work, marry, snub, and exploit to our immortal horror or everlasting splendor. So uh, that quote has always stuck with me. It reminded me of this emphasis of yours on Imago Dei. Can you talk about how in the world of business you have learned to treat people uh, as, as created in a divine image in a world that can be so transactional? Yeah, that, that C.S. Lewis quote is, is, is one of my favorites as well. He, he, uh, C.S. Lewis, maybe we can, <laughs> we can go and fanboy club uh, him. He is, uh, the, the clarity of thought and the depth of his uh, thinking and, and research um, and examination of uh, life and faith, uh, it, it's just, he sings to me. So yeah, that quote has always stuck with me as well. 
Um, I think the, the idea of the Imago Dei and made in the image of God is, is really straightforward. So if there is a creator and if we are made in his image, then it totally transforms the way you look at every person. It has to. Um, anytime that we are um, looking at people as the, as the means to some other end instead of the end and of themselves, uh, it's, it's a misunderstanding. Assuming you, you believe that there is a God and we are in the image of him, it is a misunderstanding or it is a, a form of temporary insanity. And um, I, I just, I firmly believe that when I look into other people's eyes that I see a depth of soul and that they are, they are made in the image of God. Um, and I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with C.S. Lewis that um, if we could properly see each other, we would be tempted to worship uh, in our perfected state. Um, and I think that it, it, the, the underlying, the underpinnings of that sort of have to infiltrate everything uh, that has to do with people. And so when you look at people as being transactional or, and look, by the way, let me, let me stop there for a second and say, um, I have to remind myself of this all the time. When I get cut off in traffic, I'm not thinking to myself, oh gosh, they are made in the image of God. What wonderful people. Thank you for cutting me off in traffic. Of course not. Right. I'm thinking to myself, what in the world are they doing? Right. Um, and, and so you, you have to constantly pull yourself back to, uh, the underlying reality, which I think, I'm not going to say everyone gets it, but I don't think there's very many people who look at um, others and um, really believe what Scott Adams, the the famous Dilbert uh, uh, author, uh, would would call moist robots. Right? Like we're not moist robots. We're not just you know sort of wet machinery executing on code. There is something uh, unique about. Uh, us as a people. And um, it's reflected in this imprinting we have of morality and how we view beauty and also obviously our sinful nature and fallen nature of this world. So um, to me, the Omago Day is, is the thing that everything rests on when it comes to people and um, certainly reorientates how deals get done, how you hire uh, how you, uh, how I discipline my children, <laughs> like, like everything changes, uh, as long as I can keep that in mind. Now th- there's certainly a, a spiritual significance to you in, in this concept. And I think you've, you've spoken beautifully to that, but, you know, speaking from a more practical place, is there, a, is there business upside to treating, you know, everyone to your, to your employees, to your vendors, to, to the people you, you hope to acquire, as inherently worthy and important. What's the business upside there? Yeah, well, I would say short term, uh, it's very costly. Uh, and I think this is where you know the, everyone um, is generous and kind until it costs them something. And I think this is where time horizon really matters. So when you think about being kind and generous and treating people with respect, it, it really has to come down to seeing a much longer time horizon and being able to properly view your relationship to that person uh, in light of that. So uh, oftentimes it means not trying to, you know, uh, take advantage of people when you could. Uh, it, it, it means keeping your word when it's costly. It means, um, uh, well, it means a lot of things. I could go on and on and on. Uh, I think that, you know, what, 
what I would say is in the long run, and, and this is not always true um, in this world. So I, I don't want to give the impression that, um, you know, I, I think Buffett or Munger has a quote about, you know, if people only knew how much, uh, how much money there was to be made in honesty, that no one would ever be dishonest. And what I would say is it depends on your time horizon. Yeah. So if you're playing a one-times game and that game is going to end uh, shortly, then there is more money to be made in being short-term oriented. Um, I, I think that um, certainly there's long-term benefit, assuming you live a long life uh, in this world and a financial benefit specifically to um, you know, building mutually deserved trust with people. Um, but I would also say that that's not the main driver. If, if, if you believe that there is, uh, that this is the start of a very long, uh, uh, long life and afterlife, uh, uh, with God, I mean, I think that you have to be able to take a, a even a longer time horizon than this life in a lot of these things. It's interesting. I, I see this as a real truism that almost transcends disciplines because there's, you know, whether you're talking about fitness or investing or, um, you know, sowing the seeds of long-term relationships, you know, you sacrifice the short-term pleasure of a donut for a longer-term health outcome. You know, you sacrifice the short-term pain of, of a workout for a longer-term health outcome that you, you sacrifice buying a new pair of shoes to put that money uh, in a mutual fund, you know, whatever it is, there's a, a it's a truism that that what hurts in the in the short run can also be be quite powerful in in the long run. So I think it's a fantastic concept. And uh, short term pain notwithstanding, it's one I'd love to see every business adopt. So a second a second one of these rules that you talked about is a little interesting in light of the work that I do around behavioral finance. Uh, and this this rule was rationality. And you said in the moment. People act rationally always. Now, it's, it's interesting because on its face, my field of behavioral finance is the study of how that's not the case, like how, how people often act quite irrationally. So can you say a bit about how you think that people act rationally always? Yeah, it, it, this is a this is a pretty big revelation. As I said, you know, the, the tweet storm. Which, by the way, it's funny. You know, uh, the things that uh, I, I, t- I tweet out kind of off the cuff that I feel strongly about uh, end up getting this incredible engagement. And when I spend fifty hours on you know a long form piece of writing, uh, no one cares. You know, right. maybe there's something to that. Yes. Um, you know, <laughs> so 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 rationality. Yeah. So um, the 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 idea is that in the moment. So you got to remember, in the moment is the key the person is making a decision that they believe to be rational, knowing what they know and feeling what they feel. So if you have somebody who you believe is acting irrationally, it means that there's some different information, there's a different preference, there's a different time horizon, um, and a variety of other biases that come into play. But what it does, and I think this, this concept, again, is something that changed my life, is it, it forces me to um, learn about other people and learn about what makes them tick and not write them off. So it's so easy to say, oh, that guy's an idiot. Is he an idiot? He doesn't think he's an idiot, right? Or at least in the moment, his actions, he didn't believe that they were idiotic or he wouldn't have done them in the first place. I mean, everyone is doing the thing that they think puts them in a better position than they were in before. And that includes a heroin addict getting a fix. I mean, that includes somebody putting uh, 
you know, a vacation on a credit card that they would have a very low likelihood of maybe paying off. We could talk about, you know, businesses prey on certain weaknesses, psychological biases that people have. But in the moment, the person is choosing uh, to take a vacation because they believe that puts them in the best position, at least temporarily in their minds, uh, than they would be otherwise. So I, I think when you got to look at it in totality, do I think that um, uh, behavior is always uh, net positive to the person performing it? No, of course not. I, I, I don't have that standard for my life. <laughs> like I, I overeat and I, uh, I get angry and frustrated, uh, you know, of course. Um, and I think that that's where um, it, it's really more of an internal thing that it, it forces you to be able to examine other people. Yeah. So I, I think it's a really generous way to look at other people. And so, you know, I, one thing that I found is, is I actually agree with you. You know, my behavioral finance is ostensibly the study of how people are, you know, so, so silly and irrational. But I find with appropriate context, just like you said, people are acting on the best information that they have, sometimes suboptimally. Uh, but, you know, the, there, there's a reason behind it. It's seldom just crazy, right? You know, it's seldom just crazy. And, and similarly, when I was doing therapy, I found that with enough context, no one was unlikable. And I will tell you, um, yeah. many, many of my clients I did not like. This is like the dirty little secret of being a shrink is that, you know, you look on your calendar and certain people pop up and you're like, oh God, <laughs> you know, I'm like, I, didn't, <laughs> I just not want to, you know, I do not want to talk to this person because they just, you know, they bug you or they rub, rub you the wrong way or they're whiny or, you know, whatever it is. But without fail to a person, I found that when I knew enough about their story, um, when I had enough context for them, 100% of the time that, that they were likable. And, you know, I, I'll combine that with this Imago Day concept. A lot of times the people that were, you know, that were flicking off in, in traffic, uh, we'd be great friends with if we had, uh, you know, enough time to sit down and get to know them uh, a little bit better. Amen. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and I think that um, it's it, the, the big thing is, you know, everyone looks at their um, uh, intentions and, and, and really puts aside their actions. And then in others, we're looking at their actions and putting aside their intentions. And, you know, I, just in general, the, the, having a predisposition to examining uh, everyone's intentions, uh, even if those intentions conflict with uh, the intentions that we hope they had in that moment, based on who they are, uh, it makes sense to them. And I think that most of the time, I mean, there are gen look, there's genuine evil in the world. Like, let's just, let's throw that out there. It's not that everyone has great intentions and it's not like there aren't horrible things that are done to each other. Right. So let's, you know, let's bring it back, back down sort of like the, the nitty gritty of daily life. With that said, most of the time, People are not acting out of, of, of evil. Um, and I think that, may, you know, assuming, and most people are not idiotic. <laughs> like there's a good reason behind their actions. So it's just, a, it's a good filter to, uh, to, to, to give the proper disposition and, and really honestly, a, a good fountainhead of, uh, of humility. It's interesting because you brought up a, a concept that's known in psychology as the fundamental attribution error, which is we judge our own behavior by our intentions and, and others on, on just their behavior. And so when, when we cut someone else off in traffic, it's, you know, because we haven't had our coffee yet or, you know, because we had a long night up with our toddler, or, you know, whatever it is. And then when someone else cuts us off in traffic, it's because they're bad to the core, right? They're, they're yep. a 
terrible person. And so I think the more, the more that we can be generous with other people the same way that, that we're generous with ourselves, I think the better off we'll be. But, but we are still left with this problem of you know, suboptimal decision-making, of, of maladaptive choices. So how do we combine these two concepts? Let's say you have an employee who's, who's making choices that are suboptimal. Uh, you assume the best of them, you assume rationality, but you're still not getting what you need. How can you sort of combine these, these two concepts? That's a great question. I mean, look, uh, hard conversations are part of life. Um, and I think that when it comes into the workplace, the, the thing that you can do is always love pe- people for being people, right? And, and separate who they are as people from their actions and treat their actions as something they do, not who they are. So if somebody lies to you, they're not a liar. They lied, right? We're all liars. Um, and I think that, you know, as a, as a manager or somebody who's in a position of authority, I think it's a really crucial distinction that people, even people who you may have to fire uh, or part, you know, part ways from the company, I, even they should say uh, about you that you cared for them and that you treated them fairly. I think that's a, that's a good test. I mean, of course, there's going to be challenging situations that arise and not everyone's going to love you, right? But I think that the only thing you can do is control your actions towards them. And even in the most uh, disappointing circumstances, um, being able to um, sit somebody down and have them know that you care for them goes a long way in getting to the core issue and sort of bring down the defense mechanisms. Have you read the book Leadership and Self-Deception? I have not. Yeah, I'd, I'd recommend it to you and, of course, to the listeners. I'm, I'm thinking about this conversation, and I, I can't help but give book recommendations. I think Martin Buber's I Thou is a fantastic book. Um, it's a very hard read. It's highly philosophical and pretty pretty weighty. Uh, but Martin Buber's I Thou is a, a great book on this Imago Dei concept. And, and then Leadership and Self-Deception, I love this book because so many, um, so many leadership books, so many psychology books are just tactical. You know, it's like if you, if you do these things, uh, do these behaviors. Uh, and it doesn't speak to the heart or the intention at all. Uh, and Leadership and Self-Deception is really all about the ways that we can fool ourselves into, into thinking we're doing something kind or generous for other people and really having kind of a rotten uh, heart about it. And I believe that people have a profound sixth sense for these things. So you can do, um, you know, the uh, the seemingly right thing with a, with a grudging heart, and people will focus on the grudging heart and not not the fact that you did the right thing. And, and conversely, I think if you can judge people generously, judge them as being rational and you know not getting out of bed in the morning to make you angry. And you have to have a hard conversation with them. If they can feel that that's motivated from a good place, you can you can scarcely go wrong um, if if they can feel you, you know that you care. So that's I think a couple of books that I'd encourage folks to check out. So Brent, uh, the next the next thing I want to talk to you about is uh, two uh, value investing concepts. But I want to hear about how you apply them both to uh, seeking out great new small businesses and and also to life. Uh, so the concepts are, are messiness and margin of safety. So if you could just give like a brief definition of how you think about those concepts and then how you apply them to your search uh, for, for truth in life and in business. That's a great question. That's a hard question. I mean, um, you know, on the surface, I would just say is, is life is messy because people are messy. Um, and, and life is people. So, um, when you look at a business, uh, it is a, a group of people coming together to serve other people. Uh, and all those people are going to be messy. The people you serve, the people, your coworkers with your boss, 
um, the person who reports to you, your customers, your vendors, uh, local community, it's all messy. And, you know, it, it, uh, early in my career, I was constantly surprised that uh, people were messy because I never saw myself as messy, right? Of course not, right? Um, and the more that my own messiness got brought into uh, clear view, and the more that I started realizing like, yeah, I guess everyone's messy, you know, including me. And, you know, I should never be caught off guard by that messiness. So when somebody uh, doesn't, per, you know, perform or behave the way that I uh, want them to, one, I shouldn't make the assumption that I know better than them and that they should behave the way I want them to. Um, I mean, uh, oftentimes I don't behave the way that I should. And oftentimes I don't behave the way other people would like me to. <laughs> so why would I expect anything from others uh, other than, than, than what happens with me? And so I, I think just in general, if you go through this lens of looking at the world as messy, and that's really the, the, uh, the way that we developed the book, uh, The Messy Marketplace, was from this exact standpoint. It's, you know, sellers are messy and buyers are messy and intermediaries are messy and the family members of sellers are messy and coworkers are going to be messy. And so w- when you look at it from that standpoint, it gives you a proper view of what to expect. And then you shouldn't be surprised by it. Um, I think that does dovetail nicely into this idea of margin of safety or redundancy, which is, look, stuff happens. Um, you should expect it and be prepared. And it, it applies far beyond investing, but certainly to investing. You know, if you're assuming that everything has to go perfectly, it's just not going to and you're <laughs> going to screw up. So as long as you acknowledge that and plan for it and create uh, redundancy, don't over lever companies. Um, you, you shouldn't expect miracles to happen, <laughs> right? Um, and you shouldn't price things for perfection. So it, it's building in, um, you know, a margin of safety. It's building in um, a buffer into your investment decisions, into your hiring decisions, into your budgeting decisions uh, to reflect uh, a, the messiness that will come down the pipe. You just don't know where that's going to come from. So I, I think the I, I want to talk a bit about how you uh, gained an understanding of your own messiness because I feel like this is such a, a tough thing for most people. And I look I look at myself and I you know I, I got a PhD in psychology and I use effectively none of it right like I went to I went to school I went to school uh, to to be a clinical psychologist and that that is not what I have done with my career so I mean the degree opens doors for me certainly. But when I look back on the real benefit of, of those years, uh, I had to be in, in weekly therapy. That was a, a, a requirement uh, of, you know, graduation was that you be in weekly therapy because, you know, how, how dare you presume to, to be therapeutic for others when you haven't sought this out for yourself. It makes, makes a lot of sense. And that to me, more than anything I learned in the classroom was the big takeaway, was, was learning to be non-defensive, was learning about my own messiness. But absent a super formal process like that, how, how did you gain uh, an understanding of your own messiness and an acceptance of it? Man, I, a lot of people being very, very patient with me. Um, I, am, I am blessed to be surrounded by a, uh, a wife who loves me deeply and isn't afraid to tell me how it is. Um, I'm, I'm surrounded by, um, longtime coworkers that, uh, have been very patient in, uh, addressing, you know, a variety of issues that I have, uh, whether it's, 
uh, pride in particular is just, I mean, it's just like that, that is my, that is my core idol. Uh, my core sin is just, um, thinking way too highly of myself and, and, and assuming that, uh, the work that I'm doing is far more important than others. And, and it's just taken, and it continues to take a long time for, you know, I just need to get that beaten out of me repeatedly. And, uh, and, you know, when, when you surround yourself with people who care for you, uh, but are, are also willing to speak the truth, I think that's the magic recipe for, um, you know, for, for, for making progress. And I, of course, we're all a work in progress. Um, you know, I, G.K. <laughs> Chesterton, uh, who's one of my, my favorite writers, uh, was asked by the Times of London, uh, famously, uh, to write about the worst person in the history of the world. And he submitted the shortest essay, uh, I think that's probably ever been written. And it says, you know, uh, I am signed G.K. Chesterton, right? Um, his whole thing was, look, I, I know what I'm capable of. I know what I've done, uh, far more than the stuff that's public. And, and uh, it should be humbling. We, we all know the things that no one else knows and the thoughts that we have. I mean, I wouldn't want a, a tape recorder on, on my internal monologue. Uh, it's pretty messy. <laughs> so, um, you know, so uh, I can only assume, I mean, maybe everyone else has a perfect monologue going on, but I would assume other people have some challenges as well. And, and um, you know, as you start bringing into your your, your own messiness in, into clarity, um, it, it really does help you to... Uh, um, give people the benefit of the doubt and, and to, uh, you know, add some empathy. Well, I think so much of, I mean, this is sort of a classic psychological idea the, of projection, but I've found in my own life that so much of, of what frustrates me about other people is just uh, things that I'm upset at myself for. You know, yeah, when I find my, when I find myself annoyed that so, you know, someone else is doing something, it's just because I'm so prone to that thing and I hate it about myself. And so I think, you know, understanding the messiness is a good step there. And I love how you, you talked about your wife and the other people that surround you because giving that, you know, giving that tough feedback is, is necessary, but not sufficient. You also need that care. You also need to understand yeah. that they're giving that to you because they want to make you look good. They want you to improve and not because they're trying to, to roast you. Right. I mean, I think that's, yep. That's what's absent. You know, I look at, I look at some of the, you know, I, I'm a frequent public speaker and, uh, you know, usually get very nice reviews, but occasionally, my goodness, <laughs> you, get, you get feedback and it's really hard to hear. And it's because there's no, there's no relationship there. And it doesn't always yep. feel like uh, they have your best interest at heart. It feels like they're, they're trying to, you know, make, make you look dumb. And so yeah. I think the, I mean, that's I think the, the two-part yeah. recipe. Yeah, I think the, the, the formula that I, the, the way that uh, somebody once told it to me is you, you need uh, real truth and you need to be able to speak truth into people's lives. But, but without that relationship and without that, that love and care, um, it, it's, you, you, they're just not going to be able to hear it. And certainly people don't change quickly. I, I, don't, I have never changed quickly. Um, and so it's really the, the formula seems to be you know, sort of truth plus kindness slash relationship over time. Right. So you got to have the patience to be able to uh, walk with people over a long period of time and realize that just like you don't change quickly, other people's don't change quickly as well and, and, and accept that and be fine with it. Um, you know, we all got our stuff and we're all a work in progress. Absolutely. So the last of these concepts, we're going to make people go, go connect with you and read all 10. But the last of these concepts that I'll talk about is this concept of being forgotten. So you said in 100 years, no one will know my name. Living for fame and recognition is like chasing the wind. So uh, I find this concept evokes in me a, a dualism. I find it 
simultaneously freeing and paralyzing. <laughs> so <laughs> on, on the one hand, it's like, yeah, you know, uh, let's go for it. Like, let's, you know, let's live for today. Let's do great things because, you know, in a hundred years, uh, you know, wh- wh- whether I built Berkshire Hathaway or, you know, Crosby Consulting Party of One for, for all these years, no, no one will ever, no one will really care in a in hundred years from now. Uh, and then on the other hand, I could also see it evoking like, a, eh, then why try? Who cares about any of this? Why not just give up? So h- how, do you, how do you use this to energize you without getting uh, caught up in the negative half of it? Yeah, well, so um, look, I, I say in the tweet, um, I, I reread Ecclesiastes, which is um, probably the most fascinating entry point into the Old Testament of the Bible. In fact, most people who have never uh, never been exposed to the Bible, um, it would be shocked that it's in there. Because basically what, what Ecclesiastes says is no one's going to know your name in a hundred years. Um, to, to, you know, that everyone, the wise and the foolish die the same way. And ultimately, uh, any wealth you build up in this world eventually will be consumed by, uh, you know, people who will destroy things with it. Right. Which is a very like dark and dour. And there's this, um, there's this phrase used in the book, uh, which is translated in most translations as um, uh, chasing after the wind, right? Everything is meaningless, meaningless. It's like chasing after the wind is repeated. I think it's like 77 times through Ecclesiastes. And, and what it means is not that everything is meaningless in the sense that um, it, it doesn't matter because I, I, you know, you obviously have to, to read things in the context of the, of the larger story. And, and absolutely, you know, when you go back to the concept of the Imago Dei, you matter a ton. I matter a ton. The people around us matter a ton. The work that we do matters uh, a ton. So it, you got to read in context. And what it means is life is like a vapor. It is a, it is like a mist that uh, a dew that appears uh, temporarily. And if you look at your life as participating in a much larger story, and you look at it as playing a role, a very insignificant role, but an important role, right? Like that's the dualism that I think you're talking about is it can be paralyzing sort of, you can go down the, the path of nihilism. Um, and, 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 or, you know, you sort of go, go down the path of hedonism, right. Would be like the two paths. And by the way, Solomon, the author, uh, goes down, uh, both of those paths in the book and I, you know, and talks to those. And ultimately the, the conclusion that, that the, the, the motivation that I get from it is, is a proper framing of my life. So it humbles me, uh, into the dust. And this is the great tension that I think, um, supports, um, uh, my faith, uh, uh, being a Christian is I'm humbled into the dust knowing that uh, no one's going to know my name in a hundred years, knowing that I am a, uh, a small bit player in God's story while simultaneously knowing that the God of the universe who hung the stars loves me deeply and cares for me. So it's that weird tension that that creates where you neither go down the path of hedonism nor go down the path of nihilism. And in fact, it's, it's like, um, It's like two strings keeping you centered in the middle of the road. So when something happens to me that I'm like, oh, this is a huge deal. Wait a minute. Is it really a huge deal? Like in the grand scheme of things, is it really that big of a deal? And the answer is almost always no. Um, And in the true grand scheme of things, the answer is always no. (laughs) Uh, And then simultaneously, um, do, do I just, uh, does nothing matter? Does, of course, of course stuff matters. We all know stuff matters, <laughs> right? Um, and so this is where that nice tension is held. And I mean, Ecclesiastes to me is, um, it's just, it's just one of the greatest gifts ever given to mankind. 
So I have a I have a lapel pin that I have stopped wearing because it freaks people out. But it's a it's it's a skull. It's a skull, and it says a memento mori under it. And it's mm. it's right. It's this, this same idea that you're talking about in Ecclesiastes when uh, when when Roman gladiators were successful in combat, they would bring them back to the arena and they'd put them in a chariot and they would you know parade them around the arena and everyone's um, you know. Uh, everyone's clapping and throwing flowers and, you know, they're feasting, but they would put a slave in the back of the chariot whose sole job was to whisper in the, in the ear of this conqueror, memento mori, which is effectively remember you're just a man and that this is all, you know, going to pass away. And so, you know, on their best day as sort of a check against hubris, they have someone there saying, look, there's this, this tension that you talked about. You are simultaneously, uh, deeply consequential and deeply inconsequential. <laughs> so it's it's understanding this tension and, and walking it the way that I think you talked about uh, that that can energize us uh, while helping us keep that long term perspective. That's that's important in life and investing in, in in all our pursuits. I think. Yeah, and I think that you know the I think the the thing is that the gifts we're given uh, that God gives us. I mean, He wants us to enjoy those gifts. Like he wants us to enjoy the the food and the vacation and our families and and our coworkers and 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 enjoy them and see them for good gifts, but but also don't distort them into being more than they are. So your business success is a gift. It is absolutely a gift, and it's a gift to be enjoyed. But that also doesn't make you the the, the master of the universe. It doesn't make you into more of what you are, which is a flawed creature that is still loved by God. Right? I mean, I think that's the that's the tension. And when you're able to walk that tension, which no one is able to walk perfectly, of course, you're always falling off to, to either some sort of form of, you know, mild to moderate to deep depression, right? Uh, uh, sort of like the nihilism side, or, or you're falling into pride and, and, and uh, hedonism right on the other side. And I think that's, uh, that's the great mystery of life. How do you, how do you strike the balance? Well, you know, as we move on from from a handful of these concepts, I just want to thank you for bringing your whole self to your job. It's it's wonderful to see someone who is so open about their their worldview and their life philosophy, and who brings that to their job so so wholeheartedly. So I appreciate you taking the time to, as you said, jump in uh, to the deep end of the pool. Now we're going to do something profoundly silly. We will be exiting the deep end now for for the shallow end. <laughs> as, as we begin to wrap up, you know, I'm a shrink, so I have to I have to you know sit you down on the chaise lounge and have you free associate here. So I'm going to say some words, and I just want you to say the first thing that comes to your head. You ready? Okay, okay, I don't do very well with this stuff, but yes, let's do it. Let's okay, Saint Saint Louis Cardinals, losers. Oh gosh, did I say that? I'm a Royals fan. No, the, the, so, correct, oh, the correct answer was best fans <laughs> in baseball. Uh, we were looking for, I'm a Royals fan. We were, the, the only time, the only time I, I, have a, I have a truce with my wife because she's a Cardinals fan um, that when the Royals aren't playing the Cardinals, I'll root for the, for the Cardinals. But I'm a Royals fan at heart. I grew up, I grew up with, with, on the Kansas City side. So. Well, shout, shout out to your wife. Um, and thanks for nothing for stealing the 1985 series from us. <laughs> Bad call. Okay. Oh, that sounds like something a loser would say. No. <laughs> oh. Ah. 11, 11, 11 rings. That's all I have to say. Okay. Fair. Fair. Okay. So that we're gonna. You failed the first one. Uh, you're deeply flawed. So we're gonna go to the second one. The second one is Ted Drews. Uh, delicious. 
Yeah, it's gotta be delicious. Yeah, yeah, correct. it's a, it's an incredible custard. Yeah, you, are you gonna tell people about Ted Drews because it's oh. freakishly good? Oh, it's so good. People, go to go to go to Missouri. Uh, the next question: <laughs> does, does Mizzou belong in the SEC? Is the next question. absolutely, absolutely, we belong in the SEC. We, we look in football. People were were bagging on us, and in football, we won the SEC East two consecutive. The first two years we were in the league, two, only two consecutive. To, only to get I mean, stomped by the West, though. <laughs> Hey, 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 details, details. All I'm saying is we, we were the kings of at least the bottom half of the SEC. Let's just call it that, okay? I like, I like Mizzou in the SEC. I'm an Auburn fan, but I like, I like Mizzou in the SEC. Oh, that one's perfect. Yeah. yeah, that's true. I'll take it. Okay, so your, your personal idol. My personal idol. Um, gosh, that is, a, that is a, a tough one. I don't have like a, a, a right off the tip of my tongue. Gosh, my my personal idol probably Henry Singleton on the business side, Teledyne. Um, the guy just did what made sense over and over and over again, and adapted to incredible changing circumstances. Um, if, if you haven't studied Henry Singleton, uh, Teledyne is the name of the firm. It is just a remarkable story of adaptation and building. Um, outrageous, uh, creating outrageous value out of seemingly, uh, very different circumstances. Right. So Ecclesiastes and read up uh, on Ecclesiastes and Teledyne. And then the last question, what is a book that changed your life? I mean, I, I, I have to say it's going to sound so cliched and I'm, I'm, I'm sure some of the, the listeners are going to like, you know, throw their phone at, you know, at, at this point, but the book that changed my life is the Bible. I mean, it is, unbelievable the depth of the story and 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 before so i came to faith kicking and screaming i was an ardent atheist um i looked down on on anybody who had faith as being uh, morons and um and, and so i understand the the sort of pushback and re- revulsion sometimes that comes along with it because like I, like i was there i get it but I assumed, especially early on, when somebody was like, hey, have you read the Bible? I'm like, oh, come on. We all know the story. We know how the story goes. It's cliched. It's myths, right? I had no idea the depth um, of the story and the nuances. And, and, and frankly, I became a Christian um, because the Bible showed me that it is the best explanation that I've ever come across of of the reality that I see and is the most predictive of the reality I experience on a day-to-day week-to-week basis. And there is, uh, the, the stories that are in there and how they, uh, represent things in, in day-to-day life now. I mean, I just, it's hard to describe how much it changed my life and my worldview and, uh, ultimately led me to Christ. So, um, it's just a really, anyway, I, I have to go there. Everything else would pay on comparison. No, that's a great, great answer. It's actually the second most popular. You're not the first one to say that. It's the second most popular answer. Uh, only Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl has it, has it outnumbered so far on the podcast. So. <laughs> well, it's also a very good book. A great book, yes. yes. Uh, Brent, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for sharing your insights and, and, and opening up to us about your personal philosophy and how it impacts uh, both your work and the way that you move through the world. It's been a real pleasure to have you. No, thank you, sir. I appreciate being on.
All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, and its affiliates, subsidiaries, employees, and agents. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information participants consider reliable, and Dr. Crosby and Guardian are not responsible for the consequences of any decisions or actions taken because of the information provided. Guardian trademark and the Guardian G trademark logo are registered service marks and are used with express permission. All materials are subject to United States copyright laws. Copyright 2018 Guardian.